the one in general that gave us pause and made me and my players unhappy was when teams, no matter how you defend it, said, we're going to work the shot clock. We're just not going to bite. I was in an NCAA game with the University of Alabama with Coach Wimp Sanderson. And he told me, he said, Coach, he said, I ain't going to bite. I'm just gonna not going to run. I'm just not going to run. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA, WNBA, and NCAA head coach and creator of The System, featured in ESPN's 30 for 30, The Guru of Go, Paul Westhead. Coach Westhead is here today to discuss the philosophies, teaching points, and crucial elements needed to run the system, and we talk coaching interviews and the flex offense during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both the podcast and our Sunday morning newsletter, where we curate and break down the best tactical, leadership, and thought-provoking coaching material that we can find. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Paul Westhead. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. Thanks, Dan. It's my pleasure. I always like to talk basketball and explore what's developing and what's good in the game. Absolutely. And we're going to get into a lot of great stuff on and off the court with you today. But, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't dive right into pace, the system, playing fast, all the things that you've done in your career at all these different levels. And so just to jump right into it, maybe a little bit of history from your end on the system and playing with pace and how that came to be something that you believed in so fully. Yeah, well, it goes back a lot of years. I was a young college coach back in Philadelphia at LaSalle University. I was 30 years old. I was very young when I got the head coaching job. And I tell you that because the background of Philadelphia basketball was very traditional, very, you know, do it by the book. Don't turn the ball over. Make as many passes as you need to make in order to get the best shot. So I grew up with that background. And my college coach was Dr. Jack Ramsey, who, you know, was famous for his coaching ability. But there was something inside of me that said I wanted to do something different. And during the 70s, when I was coaching LaSalle, I coached in San Juan, Puerto Rico for those nine summers. And basketball in Puerto Rico is something I never knew about. I didn't know about the style, the technique. The players there love the game. They love the score. They love the shoot. And they don't want to mess around and run offenses. They saw that as a total waste of time. So I'd go down there and spend a few days in practice with my new team and show them the latest flex offense or the latest thing that's going on. And they would put their heads down and say, coach, but we could just pass the ball one time and shoot it and it goes in. So <laughs> what, what are we, why are we doing all this? 
So they really challenged my, you know, understanding of the game. And I would then go back to LaSalle in the winter and start putting in things that were fast and different and change. And the faster I went with my team, the better it got. I'll just give you one little example. I was practicing how to beat the full court press one day. I had a little point guard named Charlie Wise from Cape May, New Jersey. And the ball got passed in and my team trapped him. He got stuck and he threw the ball away and he got frustrated because we had a very organized press offense. We pass it in, throw it into the middle, reverse action. You know, I knew all that stuff. So I said, Charlie, how can I help you? He says, no, I can help you, coach. If you pass the ball into me, just let me alone and I'll bring it all by myself. (laughs) I don't need your offense to bring it. And sure enough, he just, boom, he'd be gone. So I realized then that speed is to your advantage. Every time you take your time, every time you calculate and put in whether it's a press break or put in a half-court offense, you're slowing down and it looks good, but you're actually giving the defense an advantage to be prepared and counter you. So in a nutshell, I put in my fast break offense to beat the defense. If you could play five-on-two versus five-on-five, why wouldn't you go five-on-two all the time? Mm-hmm. And the only thing that stops you from going five on two, five on three is the pace of the game, which you dictate. So defense doesn't dictate that you do. So if you go pretty fast, you're going to be up against five on five. If you go ultra fast, it's going to be five on two, five on three transition confusion and all the benefits that come to the offense because the defense isn't set. Coach. How do you go from fast to ultra fast? What is the difference or what is then that you emphasize? Is it getting the ball out? Is it getting a stop? Or how do you jack up the pace to get to that ultra fast? I mean, the lessons are simple. The execution is not so simple. And therein where it begins to break down, if it breaks down. But for example, everything in fast break basketball starts with the outlet pass. I've done clinics, you know, throughout the U.S. and I finish and everyone says, oh, yeah, we understand your break. Yeah, thanks, coach. And then weeks later, I'll get a call from a high school coach or a college coach and say, hey, I'm running your system, but, and before he gives me the but, I'll say, but your outlet pass isn't fast enough. He said, how'd you know? How'd you know? (laughs) It's all with the outlet. So we practice the outlet pass. Think of a made basket. We practice that what we call 5-1 pass. My outlet man, my center is my five, my one's my point guard. We practice that pass over and over and over and over again so that it's second nature to have that ball out in about a quarter of a second, half of a second. If the outlet pass is slowed down, the break is over. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, in a singular amount, If there's one thing that makes or stops the break, it's the outlet pass. And I cannot emphasize that too much. Now, as that is going on simultaneous, all of my players are sprinting to their spots so that when the point guard gets the ball, 
and speeds dribble. He's got to go as fast as he can with his dribble down the other end. He's looking for somebody open. And the first player that he sees open, he makes a pass. And there's a message on that pass. Shoot. So it's a one-pass offense after the point guard has the ball. And we want to shoot the ball in four to five seconds. Uh, So that's how quick we want to do it. Now, anticipating some problems, that is going to work for you if you can get your players to do it a hundred times a game. Mm -hmm. So herein becomes the rub. You know, you could have a practice and you could set your players up and they could run the break and you say, hey, that's really great. You just did it in five seconds. Good. So now the next question is, can you get your players in a 40-minute game to do it every possession at that pace? And the general answer is no, you can't. They will crack. They will not do it. They will fight you. I tried this in the NBA. After 10 days of practice, there's a team meeting and you're going to be gone sooner than later. So as much as I can say you have to shoot the ball in five seconds, the real ultimate key is can you get your players to do it again and again and again and again? Coach, on that note, you always hear players love to play fast. So why do they start to fight you on it? Is it just because it's so taxing physically? Why is it after, like you said, after 10 days, they're going to be upset with you? Well, players are liars. (laughs) 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 No, not really. But players really don't know what they really want and don't want, but they find out. Yeah, I would agree with you. you I've had 20 jobs in my coaching career. And we can get into this later. And I got fired in 14 of them. But every time I would sit down with my team and say, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to play this fast break. And they're all nodding their heads in approval. Like, finally, we have a coach who wants to run. He gets what we like. They all the smiles and grins on their faces. And then, as I said to you, about seven to 10 days into practice, they're not happy. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is, to answer your question, it's too hard. It's too demanding. It pushes the mind and the body to the extreme every time. So it's not like, well, I ran pretty fast and then I slowed down a little bit. Then I really tried the next time. No, every time, every player is pushing to the limit, every possession. And players universally find that very difficult and they back off. Okay. And they back off for a lot of reasons. It's physically, mentally hard. They look at games on TV and they they don't see NBA players running that fast all the time. So you can go slower and it works. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but it doesn't work fast break. It works some other offense. Coach, when you were always putting this in or when coaches think about running the system, right? what did you always feel like was the main competitive advantage it gave your team is a reason to put it in. Was it because it created so many turnovers? Was it you just outscored people? Was it because it fatigued the other team and they would eventually not be able to guard? What was it that you really thought was the advantage that it gave your team? Many of those very things, Dan, like uh, the first one, the initial one is that we're coming down and taking an open shot against a team, a defensive team that's not ready. So you're getting a shot that the flex offense, for example, after seven passes, 
get you open in a little small window, but might get you open. And I'm going to get you open more sooner and without a ready and alert defense. I alluded to, I used to, I did a lot of clinics. I once did a clinic in Palm Springs and the coach before me was a defensive guru. So he was, he had the crowd all captivated about all his defensive drills (laughs) and he was really good too. And he said, I have my guys practice over and over again that the ball goes up and we go back on defense and I get all five of my players back in a defensive stance in three seconds. So envision the ball being thrown off the backboard and five guys sprint back, turn around, get in a defensive stance, hands up and go, you know, we're ready. (laughs) So I heard his talk and he was really convincing because that's hard to do. And I want to get to that a little bit with you. So when I get up, I said, uh, Coach Jones, I said, that was really an outstanding defensive talk. But your drill, if you played us, I only have one word for you. And he looked at me. I said, late. (laughs) (laughs) He said, what? I said, late. I said, we're going to get the ball there ahead of your three-second defense. (laughs) If you make us, we can do that. We will do that. So it's all about the speed of the game. And see, that creates so much offense. So I'll elaborate. It gets you an open shot. Better than that, it gets you an open second shot. So I'm going to get right to the core of why my fast break system works. And this is it. We get an incredible amount of offensive rebounds. That's the secret to this system. Not the fast break by itself. Not the jump shot, you know, the three-point shot that we took back in the early 80s. It's the second shot. So just envision, we push the ball, we pass to our two guard who's on the right side, and he shoots a jump shot with three seconds, four seconds. As the shot is in the air going towards the rim, my other players, specifically I'll tell you my foreman, is flying down the center of the court and down the lane. And my five-man who outlet at the pass is flying behind him. And my other wing is crashing from the left side. So when that ball hits the rim and this time doesn't go in, I have three active rebounders there. And here's the little trick. Nobody is blocking them out. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that to you again. When it's five on five against the flex and you shoot an open jump shot after the flex got you a shot, everybody gets blocked out because all the defenders are in position. In the fast break, if you shoot the ball within three to four seconds and the ball hits the rim, there's barely five guys stumbling around trying to get back. So I'll give you an example of the LMU player I had. Uh, I'm sure you recall uh, the name Hank Gathers. Yep. Gathers would get uh, anywhere from 15, 25 rebounds a game. Easy. He laughed at it. It was a joke. (laughs) Because he's a big, strong, six foot six, you know, person who's coming flying down the lane and nobody's getting in his way. Yeah. So all it took was his effort to get there, not necessarily his cleverness or his strength or his ability. But if you get players willing to go on every shot to the rim many times, there'll be no one there to block them out. That's what makes the break work. Not the first shot, the second shot. And 
just to your point, coach, before we got on here today, we were talking a little bit off air about how Pat and I have played against the system back when we were in college. And right. one of the things that was really frightening as a player was when you would get a defensive rebound. Like, let's say you did shoot it and then the shot was missed and we, you actually did get the rebound. The other part was hard is there'd be two guys immediately trapping you right away. So I would imagine the <laughs> other part of the system that works is, okay, you make the shot great. You miss it. You have a great offensive rebounding percentage, but then it also gets you right into this trapping system. So either way, that shot is generating something good for what you want to do, correct? Absolutely. Uh, the 20 jobs I got, I probably got 19 of them, maybe all 20 of them, because they thought I was an offensive coach you know, and I was going to score more points for them. Yeah. But deep down, I saw the value of particular kinds of defense and the particular kind that blends into the fast break is full court defense going the other way. So you're absolutely correct. And we would take a shot and not get an offensive rebound. We would immediately press and attack and trap or do whatever we had to do to create the pace of the game going the other way. Ultimately, on offensive, I just announced to you that offensive rebounding was the key to the break success. The defensive key to the break success is pace so that we were going to be in an attack mode, whether you got a defensive rebound or whether we scored and you took it out. Be honest, I would prefer that we scored once we got to two points, <laughs> sure. but we could line up our press and our attack better on a made basket because you weren't going to take the ball out as quick as we took it out. <laughs> Right. So you see, we could get set. And for any kind of full court press, the key to the press is that the defense, I'm reversing myself now, yeah. the defense is ready before the offense. Mm -hmm. You see, we're doing it both ways. That's why when this system was really flying high, we ran our offense ahead of your defense and we ran our defense ahead of your offense. So... Say la vie. You know, we're <laughs> right. we're going to be in good shape. Looking at your defensive philosophy, I know offensively you wanted to play with that pace to get those five on threes or those right. those number situations. Now you were able to set up your defense before the offense, but when you're pressing and you know then you can be giving up numbered situations for your opponent. Right. I guess what concerned you with your defense as far as when was the offense really punishing it, or when did you think you weren't executing it well? Well, when I had really good teams like LMU, they just got into the defense and then into the offense and then into the defense instinctively. I mean, uh -huh. we almost never got whipped because of what you just described. Okay. But I've had teams that they would run the offense and do a decent to very good job, and they always struggled to assemble defensively. And that's a problem. They just couldn't get the quick twitch from offense to defense. Yeah. They would go offense and kind of slide into the defense. And if you slide into the defense and you're playing a team that's alert, they're going to come down and counter you like you just countered them. It's a very fine line between doing it correctly and doing it incorrectly. And I will say this to you. That's why I got fired in most of my jobs. If you just miss doing it correctly in this system, it looks bad yeah, and you lose and you can't recover. But when you do it right, it's really, really good and you can't lose and you'll beat anybody and your players know it. They walk out on a court 
They might be 10, 20 point underdogs. And they walk out with a smile on their face and they grin at the other team and say, hey, I know we're going to win tonight, but you're going to be very tired after this game. <laughs> they knew. But if you don't do it, if it just misses, you're in trouble. Yeah, I had a team. I was coaching the women at Oregon and I took my team. We played the Denver University and my former assistant coach from LMU, Judas T. Prada, was there watching. And we get beat by Denver, which we shouldn't have. So after the game, I say, so Judas, what you see? What, what's happening? He said, well, you, you were running the break. He said, but you were running the break and they were going 55 miles an hour and you want them to go 75 miles an hour and they're not going to do it. <laughs> so he saw that as much as I pushed them, they weren't buying. I surely don't want to say the fast break system is for everybody and it works all the time because it doesn't. But when it doesn't, it's when you can't get your players to push the envelope. And if it becomes okay fast break, you lose. Coach, what do you do in those situations? I think, I mean, whether you're running the system or not, I think every coach is going to be faced with your players don't want to do something. Yep. And when you notice it and you're in the middle of a season, what is your response? Yeah. You're stuck. <laughs> I tell you my response. Basically, you can go one of two ways. You can be clever, see what's dead in front of you, and is a no-no in fast-break basketball. Add more half-court offense. <laughs> that would make sense for the Mick Cronins of the world. <laughs> you know, I'm enamored by Cronin, the UCLA coach, because he's the antithesis of me. <laughs> But I like the guy and I like what he's doing and I like watching them and they're fun. And so it just reminds me different ways to skin a cat. I mean, he's doing the opposite of me. Yeah. And it's working. I applaud him. But in my scheme, I just wanted to go the opposite way and just play faster and faster. But when you see your team isn't buying in and you add more offense, it doesn't get any better for a couple of reasons. One, you're guaranteeing now you're going to play slower. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay. Not only you're guaranteeing, you're telling them you're approving of it. Okay, guys, run the flex. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a couple options. And then when they do that, we can reverse the ball, all that. The other way is to resist and say, you're not going fast enough. You're not defending quickly enough. We're going to do it better, more, faster, faster, faster. That usually doesn't work either. So I hate to say it, but you're stuck. Whichever one you do, you have locked into mediocrity. No. And I'll digress a little bit. The teams I've had, it's not just professional teams, but the pro players, the NBA players, the teams I've had, they'll do what you want for a while. And then if it's not working, like let's say you start out the season and you go three and seven, three and eight, you're done because. They're going to say, let me get this straight. You're pushing us. You're making us go as fast as we can, and we're losing. So what the heck? You know, we can go slow and lose. <laughs> they object very quickly. On the other hand, I had the good fortune to coach the Phoenix Mercury. I coached the women WNBA. And I had Diana Triasi, who's a local gal from IE, the Inland Empire. Right. Yeah. As they say. Yep. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I had her and some other really good players, and we ran the break, and we were two and nine. 
to start the season. My assistant coach then was Corey Gaines, who I coached at LMU. And I said, Corey, I think we're done. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, because, you know, they're not going to do it anymore. The difference was that the women hung in. They didn't give up. What I learned is that you give them a scheme like the fast break or you give them a play or whatever you give them, they'll do it. Come hell or high water, they're going to do it Sure, over and over and over. So we finished that season and don't make the playoffs. And the next season, running the break, we win the WNBA championship. So that's the one example where, fortunately, I didn't back off. Mm -hmm. I kept pushing them and it worked. But that's one out of a million. Usually, if you're three and eight and your fast break isn't working because you're not going fast enough, you're stuck. Sure. And that's why I think universally coaches instinctively stay away from it. I mean, everybody talks about fast break. You can count on one hand how many real legit fast break offenses there are in the world. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, you've mentioned about, you know, if you execute the system that you can win all the time, every game, if you do it right. Yep. I'm wondering though, when you would play a team from the kind of schematic side from their end, if they would do something that would give you pause or you know cause you problems, whether it's slow it down, spread it out. When someone did something well against the system, what was it that was difficult for you guys to maybe win that game? Yeah, there were a couple of things. The one in general that gave us pause and made me and my players unhappy was when teams no matter how you defend it, said, we're going to work the shot clock. We're just not going to bite. I was in an NCAA game with the University of Alabama with uh, Coach Wimp Sanderson. And he told me, he said, Coach, he said, I ain't going to bite. I'm just going to knock them around. I'm just not going to run. <laughs> we played them and we did everything we could to entice them. And we had the good fortune. I think we won the game 64, 62, 64, 63. And it was uncomfortable for us, but that's something you almost can't turn because if the team has the ball and they're dead set on not shooting until the clock goes down, it's hard for you to do anything. But I will say this most teams, no matter how their game plan is that they're not going to run because they know who you are, you can get them to run. So I'll reverse for you. Here you are instructed by your coach not to run and you get possession. And the way we defend you, you're coming over half court and it's four on one, four on two, and you have the ball. What are you going to do? Yeah. No, yeah. You're shooting. No. So what are you going to do is... In this moment, you don't look over to your coach and say, what do you have, coach? You instinctively know, we have great advantage here. 
we're going to push it down a little further and then it becomes a four on two or a four on three and somebody gets a wide open layup or wide open shot. So what happens then is by your appealing defense, you create offense that they can't turn down. You with me on that? Oh, yeah. They can't turn it down. They score and they're happy, but so are you happy because they did it in five to six seconds. And now you're going to take the ball out in a quarter of a second and run it down their throat. So your suspect defense created a pace that they can't handle. I'll give you one example. First year I put this in at LMU, we went to Santa Clara, which LMU and Santa Clara are kind of arch rivals, the two Jesuit schools, one in a fight it out. And in the first half, and they did not want to run. We were down 23 points. And Santa Clara players and bench are laughing and happy and having a good old time. But what happened was that half was with our pace. So in the second half, they continued that pace and we won by 20. That's the kicker. You can't keep the pace that we play every day in practice. So teams that want to play slow, if you give them enough enticement, they'll get caught. But back to the Wim Sanderson, he resisted that. They had openings and he made them dribble the ball out. Like, we ain't go for any three-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> We're not doing that. Well, you have a three-on-one. My God, no, we ain't doing that. We're bringing... He knew it was a trick and he resisted. Looking at the defensive end, was there any shot you were upset to give up? If that makes sense, I mean, <laughs> an open three. Uh, I mean, what were you expecting from your defense? Yeah, that's a good question. In answer to what I just said, there really wasn't a shot I didn't want to give up. The quicker the shot and the faster, like, so we, yeah, take a layup because then we can take a rate out of the net <laughs> and off we go. I didn't object to that. What we really worked at and what I personally as a coach objected to is allowing you to get a second shot. Okay. So here we are, we're pressing all over the place. You get down and take a quick shot within five, six, seven seconds. So our defense worked. You know, you took a shot. It misses. You get the ball back and pull it back out half court area and start all over again and run in your flex offense. That's death to us. Yeah. That's the worst. So in reverse, we lived on offensive rebounds as an offensive team. Offensive rebounds against us was the worst thing that could happen to us. And with such a pace and trapping and pressing, how did you get your guys to box out or what were you <laughs> the nearest man? Was it run to like, we want guys to go to spots? How did you get them then to box out or get the defensive rebound? Well, my honest answer is we did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm back to LMU. We're in a game and I very rarely call timeouts. You know, the only thing that I have in common with the great John Wooden is that Wooden and I agreed we didn't like timeouts. <laughs> Other than that, Wooden was 9,900,000 times better than me, <laughs> and, and I'm admitting it, but, but we had that in common. Anyway, <laughs> on this one occasion, we're playing, and my five-man who takes the ball out of the net, we're playing man defense, and he went out into the corner to play his big center. And the center ball fakes and shoots a jump shot, okay? Mm-hmm. And the jump shot goes in and the ball bounces a couple times. And then my center finally gets to the ball and takes it out. And as he's taking it out, I call a timeout. It was a kid from Sweden. His name was Pear Steamer. I went right over to Pear Steamer during the timeout. I said, Pear, what are you doing? He said, coach, I play my man. 
He shoot. I block out. I go get ball. I said, Pear, whoever told you to block out? <laughs> I told you to get the ball out of the net. That's your job. He said, okay, Butch, I will never block out again. <laughs> you get my point. Your viewers are going to say, this guy's certifiably crazy. I'll make my point this to you. Whatever your scheme is, Make sure you get your players to follow your scheme. Exactly. Don't get them to do things that change the scheme or slow down what you ask them to do. Don't ask them to do too much because then they won't do either. So I made my point to Steamer. I'm not saying he never blocked out again in his life. He might have done it accidentally, but (laughs) (laughs) he knew of the priorities. If you're a five man, Your number one priority is if the ball goes in, you're taking it out of the net to start our break. If you want to find time to block out and do that also, be my guest. But get the ball out of the net. That's your job. And make sure you do that. So I'm going to digress a little bit because this is a little bit of a coaching tip. We played defensively in the half court, like deny defense. By that, I mean the ball's being dribbled. All the other four players were to be fronted and denied. Now, you never see that in basketball, mm-hmm. but we did it. Okay. So if you're a weak side, low post area, instead of opening up and seeing the ball and seeing maybe somebody driving down the lane, uh-uh, you're denying your man so that he doesn't get a pass. We were doing this for weeks and games and, you know, we had pretty good success. My assistant coach, Jay Hillock, said, Coach, could we get our players to open up on the weak side? Could we just have them open up and, you know, see the ball? (laughs) Because here's what happens. If you're in a half-court defense and you're playing the ball handler or dribbler and the other four are denying and it's working, this is not like a quiz. I'm going to give you the answer to the question. What's the ball handler going to do? I'll give you the answer. If your defense is working, he's not going to pass. He can't. He's going to take the ball because you're making him down the middle of the court and try and score. Whether he wants to score or not, he has to. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I'm not a football guy, but it's a little bit like football. You know, when the offense has the ball and they're trying to run a play, a pass play, and everybody's covered, you wind up that the quarterback has to go. That's the run because he's the only one open. Right. He can't find anybody. <laughs> so it's the same idea. He can't find anybody. If they can find somebody, my defense isn't working. So because of that, we would observe that the ball would come down in the middle of the court into the foul line lane area frequently. And my assistant kept saying, well, can't we get some guys in there to help out? So I'm giving you this whole premise. He bugged me so much. This is during practice. I went over to my weak side forward, which happened to be Hank Gathers again. I said, Hank, I know you're doing a good job denying your man. Could you step off and help and see the play? He said, yeah, I can do that. He said, but I'm telling you right now, I ain't going to deny my man again like that. So he said to me, which one do you want? (laughs) Which one do you want? I'm not going to do both. I can't do both. I'm giving you that example because it comes back to whatever your scheme is, get your players to follow the scheme exactly. And you'll win more games than if you try to do everything. Trying to do everything, you better be Dean Smith. (laughs) Right. 
My last question, just how the system, if it changes or your views or your tweaks on anything when it comes to late game and was such a huge variance where probably like no lead is really safe or no deficit you can't overcome. Would you think about anything different if it's in a possession game and it's three minutes left? Yeah. If you think of a, a hundred coaches and throw me in there and say, yeah, I'm one of a hundred pretty good coaches. I was probably in the bottom 5% in what you're just now talking about because we never really practiced end of game. I was of the philosophy, let's be up 20 or down 20. So let's not worry about it. <laughs> that was one approach. My other approach was, see, my practice simulated the game. So everything we did after we warmed up and you know got you know, warm-up drills and stuff like that, everything was speed. We never played half-court defense and stopped and talked. We never went down the court and stopped to correct. Any corrections I made that were on the flow, in the, so we always went down, back, down, back, down, back, stop. It was never half-court for 10 minutes, then half-court no. something else, then block-out drill. See, I I didn't have a half-court block out drill. I didn't believe in that stuff. All right. And if I did anything like that, it was at the very beginning of practice, like warming up practice. But once we went full court, we went full court, different things, an hour and a half. So I'm giving you that as a background because anytime using one of my assistants say, hey, why don't we do a little end the game stuff? I said, "Uh, okay. (laughs) Practice was awful. I don't know what your experience is, but like, you stand around, you say, okay, there's uh, 20 seconds left and we're down one and it takes you five minutes to create the situation. And then you tell the offense what you want them to do and the defenses are looking at you and the play never works. Yeah. You know, somebody steps in and steals a ball or, you know, pushes a guy. And so some coaches practice end the game situations every practice and they're really good. And I give them all the credit in the world. Not me. <laughs> I just said, it kills my practice and we're not any good at it. So let's run the system. Well, I'll give you one example. I'm back to Loyola Marymount. We're playing St. Mary's at St. Mary's. Speed game is going to, it's up into the 90s, maybe 100. And St. Mary's gets fouled with about eight seconds ago and they make the free throws and go up one. So there's like, eight seconds, maybe seven seconds, they're up one, they made it. So most coaches would call a timeout and set up the play that they practice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we haven't practiced the play. But anyway, I'm not as dumb as I'm making myself out there right now because what we had practiced was our fast break off the free throw. Uh Can I come up with a play better than that? For me, I didn't think so. So we take the ball out of bounds. We run our wings down into the corners. We run our four down the middle to the basket. Here comes our guard, Corey Gaines, who's lightning fast, speed dribble down the court. He gets to like the top of the circle. He's on the right side with about four seconds to go. He has nothing. By that, I mean St. Mary's covered my wings covered my four, covered Corey Gaines, because otherwise he'd just break it down and try and take it to the rim. So we have a trailing five man. And if you remember the days of Redlands, you'll, you know that yeah. you just pass to that big as he's coming. He's the last one down. We throw it to our trailing five man, which is a young man named Mike Yost, 
who was a very good player. He was from Crespi High School, and he takes a three-point shot with like two seconds to go in the game and nothing but net. Uh-huh. So we win the game on our break. That was our play. There was no discussion from me. I'm telling you all this because it worked as the end of the game play, but that was Mike Yost's first and only three-point shot in his <laughs> career. Okay? He never shot one before or uh-huh. one after, and he made it. What I'm really saying to you is have a scheme and follow your scheme. And your scheme will get you through 95% of the situation. See, it, the minute, I'm not disagreeing with coaches who are very efficient. They do all these different drills and different scenarios. But your scheme will get you through 95% of the situations. And if you miss on 5%, so what? But you better be good at the 95%. <laughs> right. <laughs> Coach, two quick things for me before we move on from this. One is stats that you would look at, stats and analytics, and maybe take a halftime. Markers that you would look at whether your team was playing well or not playing well, whether it's offensive rebounds, shooting percentage, number of shot attempts from three versus two. What were things that you looked at to make if there were any adjustments or things you would bring up to your team? Yeah, it's interesting. I wasn't a big stat guy. If I looked at a halftime stat sheet, there were things I would and for example, like turnovers, we were not a big turnover team. So if we were really high in turnovers, that might cause me some alarm. But even though we played ultra fast, we routinely led the league in the least amount of turnovers. And part of that is that we pass the ball to our one guard and he passes to somebody who shoots. Right. So yeah. how are you going to turn the ball over? Yeah. You run the flex, and you're going to turn the ball over. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, The one thing that I always looked at halftime and at the end of the game was free throws and what our free throw percentage was and how many free throws we were getting. And I would be concerned if we were like, you know, four for 15 or something like that. So, oh my gosh, you know, like no matter what system I'm running, if you don't make your free throws, you could lose. That was a generic thing. It wasn't like I'd you know, then hammer the guy say, come on, guys, make your free throw. (laughs) Yeah. No, but it would cause a little concern to me and I would probably say to my assistant, say, you know, we got to shoot better free throws. Otherwise, no matter what we're playing, we could be in trouble. And I say that generically about basketball. That's how important free throw shooting is. No matter whether you play fast or slow, if you're not shooting like, I don't know what the average should be, but let's say close to 80%. You're putting your team at risk that you better be doing the other things very well because the free throws are going to come and bite you. Coach, my last question here, kind of wrapping up all this is just having to do with personnel and talent level and, you know, coaches who are maybe thinking about implementing the system or running some type and say lesser talent versus more talent and things you might need to have on your team to run this effectively. Better have a point guard who can push the ball. Yeah. And I say that, but you really have to coach that player in how fast you want him to go. Uh I could today get a group of young boys or girls and say, I'm going to drop the ball at the foul line and I want you to dribble as fast as you can to the other end, like to the basket and time you. And without any instruction, they could probably do it in like four and a half, five seconds. And once you start training them and drilling them, they can start cutting that down and cutting that down. And then they have something to shoot for. And you'd be surprised how they can get that down. I mentioned the 
Corey Gaines, who was a coach with me, he played for me at LMU and he was my point guard. And I said, Corey, you're going to push the ball as fast as you can. He said, okay, coach. So we timed him and he did it in like 2.8 seconds. I mean, really good. So I said, do it again, do it again, do it again. He got it down to like 2.4. And then a few days later, I drilled him again. He got it down to two point flat. And then a few days later, he did it. He was down to 1.7. And then he got it down to like 1.3 on the dribble. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he said, coach, 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 is it going to, I said, yeah, when you get to zero, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) So what I'm trying to say is what your scheme is, you have to work the scheme over and over and over and over. And you'll be surprised how fast they can go. And then, as I said, when we first started this discussion, once you get them to see how fast they can go, can you get them to do it over and over and over and over? Sure. That's the real key. That is the rub. We want to transition now into a segment that we call Start, Sub, or sit with you. And this is a quick hitting fun segment where we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you which one you'd start, which one you would sub in and which one you would keep on the bench. And so we've got a few of these for you and we'll go through them and have a fun little discussion around them. So the first one has to do with the places that you felt had the most coaching growth for yourself. So you've coached a number of different places. And I give you three different places where you were the head coach and which one you grew the most as a coach. So start, sub, or sit your experience as a head coach in the NBA, in the WNBA, or at the NCAA collegiate level, whether it was LMU or Oregon. Yeah, I can answer, but it's really hard when you have 20 jobs, because when you say, like, for example, the NBA. My system worked a little bit, like in surprisingly places. Like, so I'm probably going to sit this way. I'm going in reverse because a lot of times in the NBA, they would not run. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get them to. I had some teams, I coached the Denver Nuggets and I had just okay players. That's why they hired me because they fired Doug Moe, the former coach, because the players as a group weren't good enough. They tried their best to run. They fought a pretty good fight. And incidentally, we averaged, I think it was like 119 points a game in the NBA, which we only won like 20 games. But I don't know who averages 119 points a game then or now, but we did. But it failed and I got fired. So I would say I would sit my fast break system in the NBA. In the WNBA, I would sub them because... I told you some of the stories how we eventually ran the break in one WNBA championship, which is that really great. So I, I'd use them occasionally, but I couldn't get them to press. I didn't tell you that part. Huh. I couldn't get them to full court press. When I first went there, we tried to do the press and run, press and run, press and run. And as hard as they tried, they bailed on the press. Yeah. However you want to do it. They said, no, 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 no. we're not doing this. I wound up playing with them some two, three zone. So it was the one time, that's why I would sub them. It's the one time in my career that I backed off my defensive scheme and it worked. Kudos to Diana Taurasi and the women. And the team that I would start would be my college teams, specifically Loyola Marymount University, where they got it, they did it, They wanted to run faster. They wanted to press. We had a defensive scheme where we would 
trap the inbounds pass, and we would send people up to steal. Sometimes we had four players at the other end of the court, all either on the ball or eight feet away from the ball, and one player back. So we did outlandish things, but the players believed, so they would just chase down and go get it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing too hard for them. So I would start them any day, anytime, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> Good stuff. Coach, my quick follow-up. I just thought it was interesting. You said how you had backed off a little bit that one time with the 2-3 zone and it worked. And I wonder what that did for you as a coach, if it gave you pause for the future about, hey, maybe a 2-3 zone works or was it just that specific team? You know, what, what went into that decision? Well, Part of my decision was that I, one of the coaches who kind of got me rolling with the fast break, especially the numbered fast break system, was a coach named Sonny Allen, who coached different places. He won a NCAA championship at Old Dominion many years ago in Division Two, And he was at SMU and he coached in the WNBA. So Sonny was kind of like my guru. I would talk to him and he wasn't into the pressing world like I was. Okay. Mm -hmm. He was not a full court press guy. He thought, and, and he had good success that he could just run his fast break and he didn't really care what defense they played. He was just relying on when he got the ball, he was going to do his thing. See, I was greedy for better, or for worse. I took it to another level. So I'm going to digress a little bit. When I was at LMU, before we pressed, we averaged, I think it was like 80 points a game running the fast break and playing what you would call normal defense, you know, whether it was half court man or zone, didn't matter. But we put our full court press in and we went from 90 points a game to 110 points a game to 122 points a game. Uh -huh. So the difference was the defense because the break was the same. I didn't change a thing. The difference was the defense. So ironically, I'm a real advocate of having the right defense. <laughs> Because if you want to be a fast break guy, you better know that you have to create pace. But back to the half-court zone. Sonny Allen said, well, the 2-3 is really good for the break because it has everybody in position mm -hmm. to go on the break. So you have in the middle of the back line, you have your five-man. So if they make a basket, he's going to be right there to take it out. You have your two wings that take off from the back line. You got your point guard is up front. So it sets up good to run fast break. What I didn't like about it was it took too long to get it. And players like it because they can relax and take the time. <laughs> right. I gave in at that moment. Okay. I gave in. And with the women, it worked. I think part of being a coach is always you got to do a little sales job. and so. Whether you're running the system or any sort of system, like you've mentioned that you believe in, how would you sell it to your players and maybe before the season or in preseason? So eventually, if maybe you did start bad or even uh, hopefully you'd start good, but that the players would still believe in it. That's a good question. I thought I was a reasonable motivator. I mean, the proof is always in the game. You can sell it just so long. Yeah. <laughs> As I already alluded to, I would try and pitch it with my NBA players. They had enough after about seven days. Like, hey, we don't want to do this. <laughs> this is too hard. And you would fabricate all kinds of reasons. Like, you know, you would hear all the time, I got to worry about my career. I can't play this fast. I want to play eight years in the league. I can't do that. You'll burn me out. So you make up things that aren't really necessarily true. The truth is, if you played really fast, you would beat all the other teams who didn't want to play <laughs> fast and you'd probably lengthen your career. 
But anyway, it's a hard one to sell. And so I say, we always thought that after five games, I would know as a coach whether my team bought and were going to be good fast break players. So if that was my barometer, I'm sure it was the player's barometer, more or less. So after five games, if you were like, you know, uh, one in four, you were stuck. Yeah. They weren't going to turn it around and get better. They were going to go the other way. They were going the other way. They didn't have their heads down and say, hey, this is <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, run that drill? Yeah, okay, coach. We'll run that drill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> better not put the clock on it, coach, because it ain't going to get any better. Okay. But if you were like four and one, it might not be perfect, but you don't have to do a lot of motivating. They're going to say, hey, you know, maybe this guy has something. You know, maybe, even though he's crazy, maybe, maybe. So that's the ultimate test somewhere along about game five. All right, coach. Our next start subset, we thought it'd be fun to ask you this question. We call it our back to schools question. So we're going to give you a team. But the rub is you can't run the system. And you alluded to it earlier that maybe you'd go the other way. Yep. So start, sub, or sit. These three offenses that you would possibly run with this new team. Princeton, motion, the five-out motion, or flex? Gee. Uh, (laughs) I think I'd sub them all. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, it is interesting. So I probably would start the flex. I only say that because in my weaker moments, remember I told you that when you're halfway through the season and the break's not working, so what do you do? On a couple occasions, I tried to run the flex because ironically, I kind of have an organized mind. So I kind of like the way the flex goes. You know, it's it's really nicely organized. I mean, you can see it and you can practice it and you can dummy it. You know, like you do dummy offense, you can do that for five minutes. It really looks nice. You know, so. The flex is uplifting. And I actually did that in the WNBA one time. I put in the flex and I had a, an assistant. Her name was Julie Brassi. She happened to be Lute Olson's granddaughter. She was my assistant. And I put in a flex. I said, Julie, what do you think of the flex? She said, coach, it's off. <laughs> <laughs> she said, don't do that, coach. Don't. But at least I tried. So I would <laughs> probably start with the flex. I probably then would sub motion. I like that concept and I see so much of it now. I mean, I just don't know if I could get my players to dribble, penetrate and not shoot. (laughs) (laughs) You want to dribble in and you pivot and then you pass it out to somebody like, but I see it and it works. And so I I like the concept of motion. If we're talking about the same stuff, that's kind of like the John Calipari stuff. Well, so that would be like, I think you're talking like dribble drive motion versus we can go either way. We also thinking like your passing game, pass cut. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was sub motion. I I, I misunderstood it, but I, yeah, I used to run motion when I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I'd say, okay, guys, just, just <laughs> move around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like motion. Yeah. Because motion, like nobody's at fault. Nobody messes <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> you just keep moving, guys. Well, what, am I, what should I do? Well, go the other way. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do motion. And the last one would be Princeton because I knew Pete Carrell pretty well. I always admired Pete, but I still don't know what the heck he did. <laughs> They dribble the ball. If you dribble one way, that means you're reversing and all that kind of stuff. It was too complicated for me. So I would sit that. But okay. Kirill, as a coach and as a man, I had great admiration for. 
Coach, my follow-up, and when you said you'd set all three to start, I guess, kind of throwing it on you is same parameters. You can't run the system. Is there something you would go to? I, we haven't talked about it too, but maybe especially the prevalence of the pick and roll in the game today. You know, what, where does your kind of thoughts lie on that? Yeah, I'll tell you what we, what I wanted to do more and more, but I couldn't ever blend it into the system. And that is run drags. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, that was a term, and I'm sure both of you are aware of them, but that was a term like 20 plus years ago that people wouldn't know what you were talking about. Let me explain where I picked this up and what I mean by drag. I coached the Phoenix Mercury, as you know, with the women. And at the same time, the Phoenix Suns was being coached by Mike D'Antoni. And by a crazy coincidence, D'Antoni is a fast break guy. I mean, not crazy coincidence, but here we are, two coaches in the same town coaching, you know, men and women. And I would go and watch his practice. He had an interest. He would come and watch my practice. He would come to my games. And obviously I went to his games. So we kind of interacted and I would go and watch his practice. And that's when he had Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire and they would run drags, you know, without a chalkboard and everything. It's like, here comes the ball with your point guard and the big man goes quickly and about a half court cuts right in front of him. And then he comes off the movement of the big guy going through. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a simple technique. But the havoc it causes, because that big man is kind of running right at the defender of the guard, or right behind him, or right between him, and on the move. And now your guard has new life. He can do what he wants. And then after the big guy drags, he can cut to the basket, he can flare out, he can go to the corner, he can do what he wants. And the point guard kind of has a new sense of freedom. So I put in drags for my fast break, like off free throws. Mm -hmm. And then you can get clever and you can run double drags. So I would run my wings down. I'd bring my point guard. I'd run my four man off and then I'd run my five man off. And the point guard would go dragging off both of them. And I owe all of it to D'Antoni. And I really, really like it. It's going to get you an opening for doing nothing. Right. And I am saying this true. We got away with a lot of things in our fast break and drags would be an example. If you do it fast enough, you don't get caught. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it. It sounds like, oh, yeah, you're a big cheater. No, no. I'm not, not a cheater. It's just the flow goes so fast that you don't get caught. In our fast break, we would take the ball out on made baskets or made free throws. We took it out so fast that many times my five man wasn't out of bounds. <laughs> But the official wasn't ready to see it. He's trying to run up the court. Yeah, he was trying to. I, I, I got to get down the court, man. I got no time to watch whether this guy has both feet out of bounds. But if you take it out slowly, he'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> he'll see your toe is on the line. But anyway, so I love drags. I would imagine officials always love seeing that they got you guys as a game to ref. Yeah, the officials, it was a special challenge for them. I would imagine, yeah, yeah getting up and down. Yeah. So. Coach, really good stuff. So this last start subset has to do with the interview process for a job. And I know that you've been hired at a lot of different jobs and and gotten a lot of really good opportunities. And so start sub or sit, these three different things that are most important to portray in an interview to you. Okay. So start sub or sit, your vision for the team or for the organization, 
your values for the team or the organization or your character as a person. So you're selling who you are and what you believe in. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, all three of them are important. Right. So I would probably sit the values. Okay. And I say that even though they're probably the most important, but they're not going to know your values until you're there, unless you walk in with five pages of printed material or a video and say, look at me, like, you know, right. I, I, <laughs> I'm a good guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I would probably sit values because as I say, values will come out when you're there. Vision. Yeah. Uh, and what, what was the third one? Uh, so the vision, uh, so that your character, like just who you are. Yeah. Your character. Yeah. That's another one. I mean, uh, how much you're going to pitch it? My wife, said to our son when he was graduated from college, he went to Fordham University and then he was out looking for jobs. He actually was my grad assistant at LMU and he was there one year and he said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to coach anymore. <laughs> so anyway, so he went into the financial world, into the business world. He would get job interviews and his mother, my wife would say to him, all right, now, Paul, here's what you should do. Tell them your name, tell them your story and thank you very much. And if that's not good enough, then it wasn't meant to be. You shouldn't have had the job. If you told them your story, like who you were, what, yeah. then don't beg. Sure. You know, so let them see what you're doing. But I would start with the vision of what I thought I could do for you and for your university or your high school or your team. And my vision would always be, I'm going to play fast. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to run. I'm going to create such activity, such excitement that you have no idea. And usually you're being interviewed by a team that wasn't successful. It hadn't worked. The coach yeah. left usually because he got fired, but usually because they had a losing team, losing season or seasons. So you're selling hope. Yeah. And the hope is I'm going to try something that the past hadn't done. Fortunately, most of the time it wasn't a fast break coach who failed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I can remember I was being interviewed for a job at George Mason University, and the athletic director's name was Jack Vance. He said, Yeah, I know your background. I know who you are. You know, uh, so we're interested. So let's meet halfway. Let's, I was in LA. He said, Let's meet in Dallas and we'll have an interview, and then we both will know which way to go. I said, Okay. So I'm flying to Dallas. He's flying from Washington, D.C. to Dallas. We're going to meet. And apparently an hour later, I'll know and he'll know whether this is going to work. So my wife says to me, I've already been fired by a number of jobs. She said to me, so when you go to this interview, could you kind of act normal? <laughs> like say, you know, you're going to play some standard defense and you're going to play, you know, walk it down offense. And she didn't break it down, but she was implying like, and tell them you're going to practice end of game situations, <laughs> and, you know, the stuff that coaches do, you know, like normal coaches do. <laughs> she said, because me and the family, we're tired of moving around, you know, we're on jobs 16 now or 17 then. And I felt her pain because, you know, moving's no fun, especially if you have three and four, we had four kids. So I said, okay, I, I will make strong consideration. So I go and I meet Jack Advance and we're having a nice meeting back and forth, back and forth. And so he finally says to me, this is like, you know, it's like, are you going to get married or not? He finally <laughs> says to me, so coach, 
If I go back to the, our president, what can I tell him that you will do for our basketball program? So I'm thinking of my wife and I'm thinking of saying like, you know, I'm just going to be a good old steady, honest to goodness guy and do everything really good. <laughs> I said, tell him I'm going to knock your socks off. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the job. You see, the speed game will get you the job. You might not keep it, but it'll get you the job because there's always somebody out there who wants to play fast. Or they think they want to play fast. Yeah, absolutely. Coach, really good stuff there. My just quick follow-up for you with the vision. And I like your advice too to your son about, you know, telling your own personal story and, and who you are. I'm wondering, you know, all these different jobs that you got and you sort of spelled out your vision and your story, just advice that you would have for other coaches when they're maybe interviewing for their first job or for whatever the job it is in their career, that might be some useful tips that you've used. Well, it's really hard for the first job because unfortunately, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really hard. That's why, you know, after I got fired by the Lakers and I was devastated, I really became a better coach then because, you know, I realized that there was a cliff and you can fall off it. And so sometimes you begin to prepare and, and make changes and make adjustments. The only thing I would say sooner or later, Let's say before your first job interview as a head coach, you've been an assistant and you've picked up different things. Have a clear idea of what you want to do. And I've alluded to this in the past. There's only a few coaches who seem to do everything very well, you know, every phase of the game. I mentioned Dean Smith. I know he's beyond the, mm -hmm. your audience's scheme, but Dean Smith, he had great players. But he did everything good. He was good at offense, good at defense. He was good at end the game. He was good. You know, he was one of those special guys. But most of us aren't good at everything. And the sooner you can find out what it is you're good at. So since we've kind of made fun of the flex, let's <laughs> say you're really good at the flex. Then in your job interview, say, hey, you know, I'm going to run an offense that will be so precise and so exact that we'll win games and my players will follow this scheme and we'll win games that we shouldn't win because we'll execute better than anybody that we play against. So don't try and be all things for all people. I think that's not the way to go. I think the sooner you become a specialist, you have a better chance of getting the job. Well, Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. So thank you for playing that game with us. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more, one more question for you here as we end the show. Before we do, thank you very much for today. This has been awesome for Pat and I to yeah. sit with you. So thank you very much for coming on and for your time. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Pat. My pleasure. So Coach, our last question for you, and it's one that we ask every coach here at the end. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Well, one of the best investments, and I didn't know it when I was making the investment, are the players that you interact with and you get to know. When you're coaching and you're dealing with you know, a group of players, whether it's high school, college, professional men or women, you're dealing with them on an everyday occurrence and you're just going back and forth with them. You know, you're helping them, they're helping you. You don't like some things they're doing, they don't like some things you're doing. So it's just normal activity. What you don't realize until afterwards is that that was some very valuable time and some of the 
interactions that you had with them last a lifetime. And I have numerable examples that I didn't know until years later. So I'll give you one. I coached back east in the Philadelphia area at a high school called Cheltenham High School. That was my first head coaching job. Okay. So I, and I was there five years. And we started with an awful team, losing record. That's why they hired me. Their coach <laughs> left. <laughs> See a pattern yeah. here? <laughs> and, uh, I stumbled into the good fortune that there was a junior high that was really good. And they came my second year, like all four or five of them. One of them is a young kid. He eventually became the AD at the uh, University of Virginia named Craig Littlepage. So I had these five players that just fell into my lap. So we became a good team. And that's a little aside. I you didn't ask me this question, but one of the things I realized is that all the teams I coach, you only won because of players. So players are the difference, not you as the coach. You're really not the difference. You think you are, but you're not. And that doesn't mean that coaches don't have value. They really do because coaches can mess up a good group of players. <laughs> But basically, you're just shepherding them. You're leading them to what their ability levels are. But they have to be good players and good guys or good young women in order for this to happen. So we have a good team. And in my last year and most of their senior year, we win 25 games in a row and go to the state championship in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and lose in overtime. So from an awful program to, you know, a high level program. So I had a good time with them. I mean, but I didn't know it at the moment. I was just coaching. So years later, maybe 25 years later, one of the players calls me, his name Chuck Sheckney said, coach, we're going to have a little player reunion. We'd like you to come. Will you come? So I did. So I go to his house. It's in Philadelphia area in Cheltenham area. I go there and there's like eight of the 10 players there. And no big deal. They're having cheesesteaks and hoagies. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds and, right. And a beer and Coke, yeah. whatever you want. So like, there's nothing for them. We're sitting around and they're telling stories about me, about how awful I was. <laughs> We'd have a two-hour practice and we'd be sitting on the floor waiting for our moms to pick us up. And you'd walk out of your office and wouldn't even look at us like we were dirt sitting on the floor. <laughs> but said, you were so tough on us. But here's what I ultimately going to tell you, what I realized 25 plus years later, they cared. They invited me to their home to just sit around and laugh and tell stories and reminisce about their experience, their time that they had 25 years ago. So I relish that experience. And this one fellow, Chuck Sheckman, he calls me about once a month and says, hey, coach, how you doing? What's going on? How's the family? So that's why coaching ultimately is important. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.